from the Asgard Company Studios in beautiful Wichita Falls, Texas, from the finest mind in the modern fitness industry, the one true voice in the strength and conditioning profession, the most important podcast on the internet, ladies and gentlemen, starting Strength Radio. Welcome to Starting Strength Radio. Uh, we're here on Friday, as we are on every Friday, and uh, every once in a while, we change things up. Sometimes I sit here and talk just to amuse myself, and we record it, and we call that a show. Today, we actually have an actual show with an actual guest and an actual important topic, and we're here with John Horgan today. John is the author of an article about cancer treatment funding research and uh, uh, things that are actually kind of important things that you need to think about in our ongoing effort to get you to think instead of obey when doctors tell you things we're going to talk to John about an extremely important uh, topic here and uh John, thank you for being with us today. It's my pleasure, Mark. We've got uh, a thread up on the on the my, on my Q and A on the website that features this uh, features your article, and we we uh, we've gotten quite a few hits, and it's got some real good discussion on this. But I thought it was uh, an extremely valuable topic because of the fact that everybody uh, that somebody everybody knows has died of cancer. It's the yeah. second leading cause of death in the United States. And uh, 1.7 million cancer diagnoses last year and 600,000 deaths. This is a third of them. third of the people die with it. Now, think about that. Four out of ten people will get cancer in their lifetime at some point. Uh, cancer treatment is horrible. Everybody knows someone who's gone through cancer treatment, and it's been horrible. It's terribly invasive. It's, uh, it makes your life a living hell for the period of time that you're engaged in the treatment. Sometimes it's successful, sometimes it's not. whole bunch of money's been spent on this. And... Things aren't as they seem, as it turns out. And we're going to talk to John about this. Again, thanks, John, for being on. Uh, talk to us about this situation, because this, this is a serious deal. Well, first of all, um, as you say, everybody has been uh, affected by cancer, whether or not you're the person who gets it. My mother died. I'm 66. My mother was younger than I am now when she died of breast cancer that metastasized to her brain. My brother-in-law died of cancer very uh, very young. One of my best friends from high school died of cancer when he was uh, in his late 40s. And I'm a science journalist. And so when uh, cancer disrupts people's lives, often they they get in touch with me and and they're looking for answers. What's the latest treatment? How can my my uh, my husband or my wife or my parent be cured of cancer? And so for decades, I've been tracking progress in cancer or the lack of progress. And the news that I have for people, unfortunately, is not that good. Uh, we've been officially waging the war on cancer since the early 1970s. And, um, but you know, the struggle goes back much further than that. Uh, people have probably heard that over the last 30 years, there has been a, a pretty steep decline in cancer mortality rates. But this comes after at least 60 years of increased cancer mortality rates. And if you look at the, the big picture, there's been really very little progress against cancer. Uh, almost all the success 
that we've had against cancer that accounts for the drop in mortality over the last few decades comes from people stopping smoking. There, there's been a, a huge decrease in the number of Americans who smoke now compared to the 60s and 70s. Smoking rates have changed quite a bit, and I think most of us have noticed this. Uh, when I was a kid, oh, my God, everybody smoked. Probably, probably smoking rates at one time in this country were 50%. They, yeah. I'll bet they were as high as 50%. I don't know that, but that's, that's my feeling about it. It was tolerated everywhere. When I was in high school, they actually had a hall in the school building dedicated to where the faculty and the kids could go smoke between classes. And uh, all my parents smoked. I've hated it since I was old enough to be aware of myself. It stunk. They smoked in the car while we were in the back seat. I've hated it all my life. I've never smoked. I, uh, I hate the habit. I hate people that smoke. I've just it's it's been something that's disgusted me my whole entire existence, and I have noticed that over the past several decades, uh, a lot fewer people are smoking now than than they were back then. I think that the current rate is something like thirteen percent. Isn't that right? Yeah, it's, it's gone way down. It depends on how you measure 13, it. 14%. Uh, but unfortunately, though, vaping is becoming much more popular among young people. In fact, I have a, a son and daughter in their mid-20s, and uh, I was just with them last night, and they confessed that they both, they both vape. It's not clear that vaping is as dangerous um, as regular cigarette smoking but it's certainly not good for you, and it, it, it keeps you addicted to nicotine. Right. Yeah, it's just a way to not have to quit. And yeah. I think we'll, we'll talk about that later because that, that's an interesting phenomenon. It, what's interesting to me is that it gets thrown into the same uh, legal constraint situation as actually smoking tobacco. You go in a bar, and the, the bar doesn't let you either smoke tobacco or vape and i don't I'm not, I'm not sure why that is i think the uh one of the ways we may have dealt with this is by making just the the activity associated with smoking uh, socially uh uh how we say uh unacceptable and that vaping looks enough like smoking to where we have to prevent that too. And I'm not sure that makes a lot of sense, but nonetheless, that's, that's what's being done. So uh, um, if the decrease in cancer mortality rates are due to, due to the cessation of, of smoking. Primarily, not uh, entirely. Primarily. Uh, I guess it would be true that as the population has grown, uh, more people are not dying of cancer because fewer people are smoking, and that is primarily responsible for that statistic. Is that a correct interpretation? The absolute number of people who get cancer and die of cancer is still going up for two reasons. The population is just right. increasing all the time. Also, we're getting older as a population right. and cancer is a disease of old age that, you know, the, the odds that you're going to get cancer just go up pretty steadily as you get older. So as people are dying less often because of other health problems like mm -hmm. heart disease, respiratory disorders, um, things like that, infectious diseases, the number of people who get cancer um, rises. So right. what scholars who are trying to track progress in cancer do is they adjust for the aging of, of uh, the population, and that actually presents the statistics in a better light. Uh, well, I think probably it's true that, uh, and you tell me whether you agree with this or not, if you get cancer in your 30s and 40s, 
there's probably some kind of genetic predisposition involved in that. If well, you get cancer in your 50s and 60s, you uh, uh, probably are seeing the effects of environmental causes, smoking, that sort of thing. And well, if you well, get cancer in your 70s and 80s, well, you got to die of something. Right. right? The... the um Smoking is by far the biggest risk factor for right. cancer that nothing else remotely close to that has been discovered in terms of uh, environmental factors. Genetics is a big part of um, of uh, the the picture as well. Some people do have a genetic inherited disposition to cancer, but the biggest cause of cancer is just random mutation errors that creep into the body as a result of all the cells replicating over and over again. Mm -hmm. The chances that you're going to have a, re a mutation that causes a lethal cancer just go up as a function of age. And unfortunately, right. there's not a lot that we can do about that. Diet is important. Obesity is linked to cancer, although not as tightly as, uh, as smoking is. But, right. um, a lot of the people get cancer is just it's just plain bad luck. And in, in fact, there's a theory called the bad luck theory of cancer that has pretty much established that. Now, smoking causes obviously lung cancer, but it, I, I'm under the impression also that smoking causes lots and lots of other cancers as well. It does. Yeah. And because you swallow the, the saliva in your mouth that's been exposed to the smoke. You, you see cancers of the digestive tract with respect to smoking as well. Cigars, dip, cause cancers of the mouth, all of these kinds of things. As it, as it turns out, the smoke of burning plants is not good for your mucosa. Who would have guessed that? Right. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Uh, have you run onto any... Uh, data that suggests that marijuana is less likely to cause cancer with similar levels levels of exposure uh, uh, than tobacco is I haven't I haven't I don't really know the literature on uh, marijuana I would assume that uh, that it uh, it is associated with some elevated risk of course I don't know many marijuana smokers who smoke as often over the course of a day as uh, tobacco smokers. Well, yeah, because you, because you fucking can't. Yeah. <laughs> and, and still have what you call a day. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> right. I don't know a lot of marijuana smokers that get in fights either. <laughs> hey, let's, 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 let's get a joint and go out and smoke a bunch of dope and then go out and get in a fight. You want to? Well, they, they don't do that either. But, uh, you know, apparently uh, alcohol is also associated with a slightly elevated risk of cancer. So it's bad. <laughs> no! if, you, if you drink and you also smoke, your chances of getting cancer of the throat and the larynx and all this kind of stuff up here, they really, uh, they really go up. Well, but you I, know what? What researchers smoke, have been looking for. So it's okay for, if I drink, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm not a drink. I quit drinking uh, ten ten years ago, uh, as as uh, as well. Um, I haven't. I I smoked a little bit when I was young, primarily when I was drinking, but uh, then uh, my mother-in-law died of cancer when she was very young, and that pretty much cured me of any desire to have cigarettes after that. And I kept drinking for another twenty years or so, and I finally gave that up as well. So I don't, I don't really have anything else to give up at this point in my life. Hell, John, you'll never die. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to be immortal, man. I play hockey, so I might. Well, you're going to lose all your teeth ice. at some point. <laughs> right. <laughs> teeth are vulnerable to hockey, aren't they? Uh, yeah. So it, it cancer, though, is a big industry, isn't it? Uh, yeah. A lot of money is spent on convincing people on hell on ads on television 
that yeah. uh, Cancer Treatment Centers of America or whatever these chains are that advertise uh, can just fix you right up. And uh, boy, a rosy scenario is painted by these people, isn't it? Yes. Uh, so there have been some studies of the advertising promoted by these uh, cancer centers. There are about 1,200 of them in the country. And a couple of years ago, they spent more than $170 million on cancer ads. And these ads, I'm sure you've seen them. I've seen lots of them. They tend to talk about an individual person. They show this person having a wonderful time uh, kayaking or skydiving, yeah, enjoying their life with their family after they've been cured by of cancer by the... Uh, by this cancer center and the problem is that's not really the way that you can judge progress in cancer as i said there has been very little progress if you take away all the uh, benefits of uh, the decline in smoking there's been very little progress when it comes to treatments for the big killers which are lung cancer colon cancer breast cancer prostate cancer those sorts of things couple of success stories that I want to mention. Uh, childhood cancer is much more treatable than it used to be, and that's a wonderful thing. Yes, it is. Uh, but childhood cancer is very rare. It's, it's like 0.3% um, of all cancer uh, deaths. It's just a, a tiny fraction. And there are some cancers of the blood and the lymph system also are more treatable than, uh, than they used to be. There are a couple of drugs that are good for uh, breast cancer. Herceptin is, is one. But we're still treating cancer in the same way, basically, uh, today that we have been for the last 50 years or so. And that's trying to cut it out. Remove the lesion and then chemo and radiation. That's it. Right. What, um, what about what, childhood uh, cancers and uh, circulatory cancers? Uh, makes them uh, more uh, receptive to, to treatment these days? Is it the, the medications or we got they're, different physical approaches to these or how does that, how does that work? Well, the thing to keep in mind about cancer is that it's, uh, it's this kind of umbrella term for all these different diseases. And cancer it is, uh, comes in all these different varieties that attack, attack different organs, organs in the body and um, even in the same person, cancer keeps mutating. So for researchers, they're chasing this constantly moving target, and there are lots of different targets. And so every now and then, they will find a drug or a, a treatment that works for a very specific kind of cancer. And that has been the case with, uh, with childhood cancer. And as I said, some of... Uh, some of these other relatively uncommon cancers. But, um, but for the big killers like lung cancer, which is by far the most lethal of all cancers, uh, the prognosis is still about the same today as it was going decades back. So, so that's what sort of, that's what I'm trying to get across to people. If they just were listening to all the positive ads coming out from the, uh, the cancer industry, um, they would think that we're making tremendous progress, but in fact, we're not. Well, the, the trick, I guess, is to not do something that we know produces lung cancer. And yeah. that way, you're less likely to get lung cancer. Now, I, I have a good friend whose mother died of lung cancer uh, about 20 years ago, and she was never a smoker. Some things just... You know, sometimes shit happens. Yeah. You know, and it's just a it's a tragic deal when it does. But if you are actively tipping the scales in the direction of cancer by doing what uh, oh you'd think looks cool in a movie or something like that, uh, I wish people could think more clearly. People do not think about the long-term ramifications of their actions. Very seldom do human beings do that, right? I don't have a tattoo, John. And the reason I don't have a tattoo is because I learned a long time ago that I didn't like the same things 
five years later that I used to like. And, uh, and you can't get the goddamn things off. So, uh, so I decided to not do that. And smoking is kind of the same thing. Uh, you know, smoking has been, uh, if you, if you watch a Tarantino movie, I don't know what the deal is with Tarantino, but Tarantino likes all his characters to smoke. I just got through watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That's a damn good movie, you know. Well, everybody, everybody smoked. Yeah, that was the thing. Everybody smoked. Everybody smoked, and I guess it was the uh, it was movies. it was uh, perfectly in character for everybody to smoke back then. But you know, Pulp Fiction, all those movies, everybody smokes. Uh, you've seen all those, John. Yeah, uh, yeah. Have you seen Atomic Blonde? I that is that is the a, one with Charlize Theron? Yes, Theron it is. Kick, and James McAvoy. That's ass. a damn good movie. Yeah. It really is, but everybody's smoking in the damn thing. Of course, it was 1989, and you know, I guess it makes sense for the period. But uh, uh, they're uh, everybody's smoking in the things, and you know, we see these movies, and I guess it's you know. Uh, people that are young and are still formative, you know, are making decisions about what the hell to do. But not a lot of smoking in Kill Bill. Kill Bill didn't have no. That's that. That's true. I wonder what the deal was about Kill Bill. You saw Kill Bill. I did. And you know, both parts there wasn't a lot of smoking in that. I think it was said in current times. Current times, maybe that's. I don't know. Maybe he's sensitive to that. But well, you go uh, back to the 1950s. And oh, all the heroes and heroines are smoking. Of course they are. And a lot of those actors ended up dying of lung cancer. They did. They did, in fact. And, uh, hell, I I remember, even back then, I remember uh, on YouTube, I, what am I saying, on TV, <laughs> uh, doctors were advertising cigarettes. Yeah, it was just fascinating. You know the the, the the doctors who did the first big study in the 1950s that established how bad smoking is for you. They all smoked. There was this guy named Richard Dahl, uh, a a, uh, a British lord who uh, was the leader of this study. He smoked. The other guys who were doing this study, they smoked. They sent out this survey to about 40,000 British doctors almost all of whom smoked. The people who did this study back in the 50s didn't think that smoking was bad for your health. They, they set out to do this research basically to disprove that hypothesis, which they thought was almost certainly wrong. And then <laughs> the data just jumped out at them. Sure. Your chances of dying of lung cancer are about 25 times greater if, you have, if you're uh, a serious smoker. And if you're not a smoker. Well, and that's intuitively obvious to anyone thinking clearly about the function of your goddamn lungs. I mean, isn't it? Isn't that yeah. intuitively obvious that you want air to be in your lungs? And it I, seems so now, but I, back I mean, then, so these guys thought that maybe it was coal pollution. They thought it was the tar being used to surface roads. They had all these other theories for why there was a big theory. spike in lung cancer. Except the thing is right in front of their face. Exactly. God. Yeah, because they were smokers. What a bunch of weird shit that is. I, I just, I don't understand it. I mean, I never have understood it. So, John, everybody... Uh, not only is of the opinion that uh, cancer is easily cured now because of the advertising that we are uh, always seem to be engaged in for the cancer industry, everybody is always encouraged uh, on the same basic media platform to get screened, screened for cancer. There are total body screening centers, screening products. Prostate cancer has got a test. Colon cancer has got a test. Colonoscopies are encouraged. There's a there's a less invasive version of that uh, that doesn't involve anesthesia or or going up inside your butthole. That still costs five hundred dollars. Well, I can't remember the name of it. I was encouraged to get this done a couple of weeks ago myself. 
Uh, cancer screening, cancer testing is a, is a terribly big part of the cancer industry, isn't it? And yeah. tell us about that. It's huge. The basic idea behind cancer screening seems really sensible. The earlier you detect cancer, the better the chance of getting rid of it, uh, of curing it, right? That, that's the idea behind Seems uh, logical. all these intensive screening programs. So that's why you have mammograms that have gotten uh, higher and higher resolution. Over the decades, more and more women are being urged to get... Uh, get mammograms at younger and younger ages. Same with men for prostate cancer. Same with just having your doctor check you for moles or funny looking things on your skin that could be uh, melanoma. Same with colonoscopies. What is what has only emerged over the last 10 years uh, or so is that a lot of these tests are detecting they're not false positives exactly. They're actually detecting anomalous cells in people, cancerous cells in some cases. But these cells never would have compromised your health. They never would have killed you. They never would have even made you sick in any way. A lot of people now who are being autopsied, autopsied they're dying of causes other than cancer. Uh, and it turns out that they have cancer in their bodies that never affected their health in any way. So what this means, and again, this is this has just emerged quite recently, what this means is that a majority of people who are being treated for breast cancer and prostate cancer, these are the two biggest problems in uh, screening, um, are being treated unnecessarily. That means they're getting surgery, chemo, and radiation and all the psychological trauma of being di diagnosed that can't uh, be cancer. understated too right for no reason right so this is millions of people in the united states now who have uh been treated um for no good reason right. the problem is the reason why this is a difficult problem to solve is that some of those people in whom cancer is detected early on actually would go on to be harmed by that cancer and killed but there's no way to determine in these very early stages who's going to be fine and who's going to be killed by the cancer but the odds when it comes to breast cancer are, are depending on how you calculate it 10 to 30 times uh, greater that you never would have been harmed by that breast cancer than if that test has actually saved your life. With prostate cancer, it's a hundred or more times more likely that you're getting unnecessary treatment as, as a result of a positive test. Now let's say that cancer. again, shall we? Yeah. Let's say that again, boys and girls. You're 100 times more likely to be treated unnecessarily for prostate cancer if you're being treated on the basis of an elevated PSA than you are to have your life saved by it. Right. 100 times. Yeah. Okay. I know people who have been told by their doctor that an elevated PSA is a direct proxy for an enlarged prostate that yes they will tell you this i have no bph at all and i have an elevated prostate on my last exam yeah. and i i'm aware of what psa actually is what the protein is and what it does you people that don't know look it up i asked a urologist about this a long time ago when i was Young and naive, because I was just a science kid, and I just wanted to know. I asked him, what is PSA? And his response was, PSA is an indicator of prostate cancer. And I said, I know you don't understand my question. I want to know chemically, biochemically, what is the substance PSA? And he patiently explained, again, well, it is a, it's a marker 
for prostate cancer. It's the thing that prostate cancer secretes. And I said, because prostate cancer wants me to know it's here. <laughs> and that's why it does that. And he, he just, you know, patted me on the head. There, there, young man, I'm the doctor. <laughs> and he didn't have any idea what I was even asking him. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I, I'm so disappointed with doctors so many times. And this is one of them. This is, this thing is, has been a scam. A good friend of mine, my professor from my undergraduate degree, one of my professors trained with me at the gym. And, uh, I'm firmly convinced that, uh, he died as a result of prostate cancer treatment. I'm firmly convinced that was that's what happened to him. And yeah. a lot of this is unnecessary. These idiots don't know how to perform the surgery. They go in and do it anyway. They biopsy people. They punch holes in a encapsulated gland, and you know, thinking that well, if you get cancer in any one of these biopsies, we have to chop your prostate out. And never mind the fact that you can't pee correctly from then on. Never mind the fact that you'll never come again. Never mind any of that shit that has to do with quality of life. But by God, we got to get this out of here or you're going to die. Well, yeah. You know what? Death isn't the worst thing that can happen to you. Now, I hate to be all existential about it, but uh, uh, I don't want to wear a diaper for 30 years because you thankfully saved my life. I wear yeah. a diaper, <laughs> but I mean, so these are, these are secondary considerations, of course, but, and I've been, I'm actually not being flippant. I'm really not. I've, I've oh, this thought is, about this, this quite a bit. Listen, Mark, I, I, I have, as, as uh, I'm sure you do, I, I know a bunch of men yes. who have had, uh, uh, prostate surgery or the, you know, the, the radiation seed, uh, put down there. And, um, I know that overwhelmingly the odds are that they didn't need to get that treatment, That's which right. caused incontinence and impotence. And, you know, these, these other health problems, the person who, in, who came up with the scientific discovery on which the PSA test is based years ago, wrote an op-ed for the New York Times about the test and said it was a great regret of his that he had made this discovery that led to this test, which on balance has harmed more people than it's helped. Uh, the and, same uh, is true on, on, on of very uh, hard balance, right? Yeah. I, that, I, that, I, overwhelmingly hard balance. Yes. Mammograms, the odd, odds aren't quite as bad, but all these tests if you measure not just the number of people whose life is saved uh, from that specific cancer, but if you look at all causes of death, none of the tests work. And this is significant because sometimes people, the diagnosis of death um, might be from a different kind of cancer or from heart disease or a respiratory disorder or an opportunistic infection. That's not counted as a death from um, that kind of cancer, when actually these are problems that were created by the treatment, by the unnecessary treatment yes. for that cancer. So there are some lives being saved by early detection, but they're balanced out by people who are dying prematurely because of this unnecessary treatment. That's the problem. Our friend here in, in the gym, John Wilson, was diagnosed with stage four renal carcinoma about, what was it, Nick, four years ago? Yeah. It's been about four years. And they've had him on chemo and first one thing, then another, he's always on some kind of therapy. But, but John, he hasn't even lost any weight. He weighed 270 pounds. You know, and we've always encouraged him to keep training. And uh, because I, and I told him this a long time when he first came in the office and said that uh, 
they had diagnosed him with he was all panic-stricken and everything. And, and it's, uh, you know, it's understandable. Uh, you receive a cancer diagnosis, you start thinking, you know, what it's going to be like to have worms crawling through you and, you know, looking up at the top lid of the coffin from now on and all this other shit. So it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a terrible situation to be placed in. But I told him, I said, John, listen to me very, very carefully. If you're coming in the gym and you're getting stronger and you're not losing any weight, then you cannot be dying of cancer because cancer is most often a wasting disease. People receive a cancer diagnosis and they sit down because they're dying. They sit down and behave themselves and they waste away and they die. And there are things you can do to, to help yourself. And, uh, these are just, Extensions of what we do with strength training anyway. Uh, strength training applied to a situation like this, it works the same way. Uh, if you are uh, actively involved in making yourself stronger and actively involved in being as healthy and strong as you can possibly be, you certainly as hell have a better chance of getting through this than if you just listen to them and take it and take it easy and just you know, spend your last few months here on earth, you know, talking to your mom and, you know, visiting with your kids and going to church and all this other shit. And, uh, I think they, given him six months. they gave him six months. They gave him six months. And here he is four years later. He won't go away. <laughs> he's a, he's a giant pain in the ass. He won't go away. Right. Good for him. And, and, uh, you know, so, uh, he just said, eh, I don't think I want to die of cancer. And so he's doing the things that he needs to do to not die of cancer. Uh, but how many other people just as a result of this horrible psychological blow, you have cancer. I'm sorry to tell you, but you're dying of cancer. You've got four weeks to live. I suggest yeah. that you get your affairs in order. How many people, uh, upon given a, a news like that, uh, say, you know what? Fuck this. I don't think I'm gonna. I don't think I'm gonna go out like that and and actively attempt to do something positive about it. Change their diet. Change their exercise habits. Alter their environment to the extent that that is necessary to make this better. Um, I think we have uh, we ignore cases like John's, and we 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 look back on our on our mom, and we watch her die of cancer, and we look at these other people who were essentially murdered by the diagnosis because that happens yeah well here's here's the big irony uh that what, what i was talking about before the, the this finding that a lot of people have cancer that never would have hurt them it the implication is that our immune systems actually defeat cancer quite often well, we have this natural defense system that works really well. Of course, it's not infallible. You know, cancer overwhelms some people's defenses and it kills them. Uh, but the irony is that with some of these early interventions after that you get a PSA test or, or a mammogram, you're getting the treatment then that is harming your own natural defenses against cancer, mm -hmm. which might have been more effective than the surgery and the radiation and, uh, and the chemo. The premise of chemo, the premise of radiation, of course, is to try to kill everything and just hope the cancer dies first. Right. right? And, uh, you know, that's a, that's a very interesting observation. I wonder if, uh, looking at this from an evolutionary biology perspective, um, as, a, I mean, all mammals, all vertebrates probably have some rate of cancer, don't they? 
Yeah. I mean, we all know dogs that have, we've had dogs that have died, had a big tumor, and they, we had to put the dog down, right? Uh, horses, cattle, the tumors are in everything. Had we not evolved some kind of a mechanism to deal with that, as, uh, you know, back long, long time ago in evolutionary history, we wouldn't be very successful as animals now, would we? Right. So uh, this has to be, I don't think that's been studied enough. I don't think that's been looked at enough. Uh, but then again, I, I'm not aware of the research. What is ongoing in terms of looking at the way we can help the body deal with cancer without uh, exogenous means? Are you familiar it, with that? It, it's this, It's the stuff that, it's the stuff that uh, we all read about in the newspaper every day. It's basically, um, uh, well, quit quit smoking, uh, diet, um, have a sensible diet, you know, fruit and and uh, vegetables, um, exercise a lot. Exercise is just has all sorts of benefits, but there isn't any magic formula that the uh, connection between smoking and cancer is unique and being really powerful. All these other things are kind of playing at the margins. I think that the best thing people can do collectively to improve cancer care in this country, it's going to be really difficult. It requires a cultural change. It means that not only doctors have to change, doctors have to prescribe tests less and treat cancer less aggressively because the data just are showing that those things don't work. Consumers also have to be less afraid of cancer. And they have to realize that a lot of these tests that are getting that are leading to, to uh, diagnoses are not good for them. They're not saving lives. In fact, they're, they're cutting some lives short prematurely. So there's this movement in, uh, in healthcare now among physicians called sometimes called gentle uh, gentle medicine or conservative medicine. It means just recognizing the limits of what medicine can do mm-hmm. and recognizing that our bodies have these natural uh, he- healing properties. And um, first, this way, first, it just means less medicine. First, do no harm. First, do no harm. It's the, it's the oldest uh, precept in medicine, it goes back to uh, Hippocrates and cancer care, the way it's being practiced, especially in the United States today, uh, just grossly violates um, that uh, that slogan, first do no harm. Lots of people are being harmed unnecessarily. And uh, it, it will be really difficult whenever I write about cancer and especially about the tests, people tell me I'm crazy. And uh, that the you know the tests are saving lives, and that I'm a fool if I don't get tested, which I don't. Uh, but in fact, the data overwhelmingly show that these tests are not are not doing uh, doing a good job. Um, so I this is why I write about this issue constantly. I'm glad you're talking about it on your show because uh, it's the only way people are going to realize what's going on and try to change their behavior. And if we can change our behavior and get less tests, less treatment, we'll also save a lot of money. Cancer costs yes. are just skyrocketing in this country. And it's what part of our- What was the figure I, I saw in your article? $125 billion spent in 2010, and uh, we're on track to spend $175 billion in 2020. So yeah. that's- uh, what a 40% increase in yeah. 10 years. And I, that can't all be attributed to population growth. No. Although some, uh, some of it can, but certainly not all of it. Well, a lot of the latest treatments are extremely expensive. Some of your listeners might have heard of immunotherapy, which is generating a lot of excitement recently. And for good reason, there have been some real successes with immunotherapy for very specific kinds of cancer. But first of all, immunotherapy only works for a very small percentage of people, well under 10%. 
And mm. as it's being used right now, it's extremely expensive. It can cost over $1 million, $1 million per patient to get immune therapy. It requires a lot of customized care and follow-up care, terrible side effects for some patients. There was an analysis by uh, a famous cancer physician at Columbia University, Siddhartha Mukherjee, uh, just last year. He said that if immune therapy is used more widely, it will bankrupt the American healthcare system, which is already near bankruptcy. Well, yes. And uh, it's a, it's, it's a, the, the, the shame is, is this, these types of hideously expensive treatment are being held out as, uh, as hopes to people for whom they will have no benefit. That's right. Uh, people whose families will be gutted financially as a result of trying to provide this for them. And, yes. uh, yeah, it's, uh. That's that's an interesting deal. Another interesting deal to me is the is the research aspects of this. You talked in your article about John Ionidas. I'm a big fan of his work. Uh, yeah, he's uh, he's done a lot of stuff uh, that uh, makes us take a step back when we start worshiping peer reviewed research. He and Bruce Charlton, if you're familiar with Dr. Charlton, he's a British guy that uh, has done uh, the same kind of thing, uh, calling into question the the actual studies themselves because so much of this stuff is just not reproducible. Anything can be published. Right. And I would imagine that a lot of... Uh, the uh, false hope that's being promulgated by cancer treatment, the cancer treatment industry is a result of some research that may or may not be any good. Yeah. And uh, no, no, the, the Ioannidis is this guy who for about 15 years has been pointing out that the, the scientific literature, the peer-reviewed literature, which is sort of the gold standard the of gold human standard. knowledge, is riddled with it's, inaccuracies. It's the evidence. And yeah. if you're not operating on the evidence, then you're not engaged in an evidence-based practice. Right. Now, in my field, exercise science and strength training, the literature is shit. It's absolute shit. None of it is of any use. Literally, none of it. Uh, just to, to quote a famous example, uh, uh, and this is in the literature, John. There was, a, there was a paper published, oh, 11, 12 years ago, by um, some guys um, down in Australia that, where, they, where they took a... Uh, a cohort of 11 people and they determined that there was no difference in the amount of weight these people could bench press if they were laying on a bench or laying on a balance ball now this is this is insane <laughs> this is absolutely insane. The data set was shit. Uh, the heaviest bench press in the whole thing was 250 pounds or something like that. Uh, you know, 11 people, six women, five men, this sort of thing. So essentially what happened was, uh, and this happens all the time, is this guy published uh, one of his students' master's thesis. And uh, it's uh, the literature in the exercise sciences is composed of trash like this. Uh, I hope, and I may be wrong in hoping this, but that the more rigorous sciences, chemistry, physics, these sorts of things have better quality publication than, than what uh, we have over here. But, 
uh, Ioannidis. Is that the way he pronounces his name? I, I call him Ioannidis. Ioannidis. I'm just guessing. Ioannidis. I don't know. Let's have him on the show. And first thing we'll do is straighten out that pronunciation. He's. Uh, I, I can't. I can't thank him enough for pointing out how bad most of the literature is and that you worship it at your peril. Well, and he's also pointed out, and this, this makes sense that the, the problems with the literature go up as the financial stakes go up. Sure. So that's why, you know, if you're talking about, I don't know, uh, some esoteric part of physics, uh, there can be problems in that literature too because there's competition among the researchers. But if you're talking about a possible new drug for cancer that can have a generate a revenue stream of millions or billions of dollars, billions of dollars, the incentives for that to come out in a certain way are enormous, and, and that and makes that can't be like, circumvented, can it? You can't take away financial incentives for research that potentially affects revenue streams that are in the 10 figures. The problem is they won't leave it alone. They can't leave it alone. You could, there are some groups, there's a group called the Cochrane Collaboration. It's an international network of physicians it's nonprofit. It accepts no money from the biomedical industry, from pharmaceutical companies, and they evaluate studies of different treatments and try to provide a really objective assessment of um, of lots of different studies put together. They do these uh, these ba- big meta analyses. There are people as a result of some of the problems that Ioannidis and others have drawn attention to, there are people in medicine and other fields who are trying to provide more objective, reliable data on uh, different scientific claims. And I think things in principle can improve, but right now it's still pretty bad. And in medicine, most of the big trials are still funded by the companies that stand to benefit if those trials come out in a positive yeah, that, way. That stand to manufacture the product we're, yeah. we're doing a trial on, sure. Yeah. And I understand that there's no other source for the money. I understand that. Uh, it makes logical sense to me that uh, people who uh, stand to benefit from this uh, would be invested in it up front. That's, uh, uh, duh, right? But... Yeah. The prescribers, the people who write this stuff, yeah, are not doing their homework. They're yeah. not doing their jobs. They're not. Uh, they've just abdicated their their thinking part of the responsibility for this stuff because, you know, they have access to the same data you've got access to. Yeah. And uh, they're ignoring it for whatever reason, and it's uh, it's unfortunate. It's, it's another unfortunate. another part of the uh, problem here is is uh, that doctors are afraid that if they don't prescribe a test, so my my doctor is constantly telling me I need to get a PSA test, and I say no, and but he wants to be on record telling me yes. that he's he's recommended the test because yes. if I get prostate cancer, yes. then he can say it wasn't his fault; it was my. Fault. He's covering his ass, and yeah. I understand why that is. Uh, and you know, you can attribute a huge amount of this problem to the legal system. Sure, you certainly can. I mean, yeah. uh, there are people trolling on the radio there are law firms or referral services trolling on the radio for glyphosate poisoning you know that's caused apparently glyphosate which is roundup has caused some cases of lymphoma and uh all you got to convince is 12 people on a jury to award a 80 trillion dollar settlement based on monsanto's manufacture of glyphosate under patent uh, and they'll get it done 
they'll get it done. You know damn good and well they'll get it done. Right. Uh, I mean, how many people in the United States have used glyphosate out in the front yard or in the pasture? You know, probably 25% of the entire population has used Roundup at one time or another. And how many, what percentage of those people have lymphoma? Yeah. Well, the, the same number that would have had lymphoma had they not used glyphosate. But you don't have to. That's not the burden that you bring to the jury, is it? Here's this yeah. poor lady, and she's got lymphoma, and she used glyphosate. And there's a study. Hey, there's a two or three studies that show that Monsanto knew about this prior to the the sale of this product to this poor lady and look at her look at her right now she needs your help jury she needs your money and that's you know this is uh yeah i i don't know man the, yeah, i don't know I, what I, we're gonna do i'm I, sympathetic I, to the uh, what i'm saying is that you have to have a certain amount of sympathy for the doctors because sure. to to be sued under these circumstances and if all they have to do to you and me is say, man, I'm just telling you, you know, I've recommended you get a PSA test because, right. uh, you know, I don't want you to get, I want you to get prostate cancer and you to come back and, and blame me for not recommending that you got a prostate specific antigen test. And as a result, I want this in your record right now that I said you needed PSA and you refused it. Right? Yeah. I, I don't blame them. In terms Hell, of, I don't blame them at all. Yeah, the and you know, I've so I've been thinking about about what we can do with our healthcare system because the problems, of course, go way beyond uh, just cancer. It's sure. it's the system of as a whole that's that's uh, messed up. I am. Uh, I think that the the market capitalism can do a lot of things for us, but when it comes to healthcare, I think free market forces have made a mess of things in this country. If you look at, you compare American medicine to uh, medicine and in other advanced industrialized countries like Europe, where they have more socialized systems of uh, medicine, they spend much less and they don't die as often. Their because, cancer mortality rates are lower. Well, than now ours. that's, I don't know. Uh, I, I know exactly what you're saying, and that's that's what the data uh, show. But I don't know that that's capitalism's fault. Uh, our medical system has not been a free market since 1966. And if, uh, if you have a doctor working for the government, that doctor is just as likely to be sued as somebody working for a, a private medical group over here the british public health service uh is more than happy to just let people die where over here we want to we want to treat them and yeah. uh, it's the funding the the differences in the funding private insurance is going to pay more than british public health service but uh i don't know a lot of people in canada that are terribly that are completely happy with the care they get up there because it's a socialized system it's provided as a is a service like water, I guess, but uh, somebody has to pay for it. Everybody pays for it, but right. uh, I don't. I don't think it's fair to lay the blame uh, for for the problems in our system entirely at the feet of the free market because the free market has not operated in this system since the introduction of Medicare in 1966. So well, we have. We have this kind of weird hybrid system. Yeah, we do. It's, I'm, I'm just I'm just looking at the I mean, you know, that the United States, if you have you have you chart per capita spending uh, for health care of all, you know, all the European countries and Japan and countries that are that are modern and have really good health care facilities. They all are, are like this. And then here's the United States way up here. Right. We just spend. Um, a huge amount more than anybody else, and yet our our outcomes are really crappy, both when it comes to right. cancer and longevity and child mortality. So I don't know what the answer is. It's a colossal I, problem. It is a, it is telling, a problem. Uh, one of the problems, though, one of the reasons it's so goddamn expensive 
is because the FDA makes it that way. Mm-hmm. Now that's the government. Yeah, that's the government, and everybody says, "Well, we've got to, we've got to prevent another uh, tragedy that occurred with uh, what was the name of the painkiller that they used inappropriately all those years ago that caused all the massive." Birth defects. Uh, thalidomide. Thalidomide. Thalidomide yeah. babies, that sort of thing. Uh, in an attempt to uh, prevent something like that from happening, uh, we have uh, rather heavy-handedly applied uh, a, a blanket system of uh, approval protocols for everything that run the, I mean, what you, what is the number? What does it cost to get a new drug through FDA trials and how long does it take? Oh, can tell, know, it could be a hundred, more than a hundred million dollars. hundred million dollars just with the FDA. Yeah. In order to satisfy all that. And what yeah. if the drug that the FDA trial has finally determined the thing was good for is only useful in about 10,000 total patients. Yeah. It's going to be real goddamn expensive, isn't it? Yeah. And if everybody is uh, going to be treated with that, and Medicare is going to step in and mandate that everybody be treated for it, yeah, shit's going to get expensive. Okay? Yeah. Shit's going to get expensive. All I'm saying is that there are other factors besides free market capitalism that have made things real expensive, and it's best to keep that in mind. That's true. Lots of regulation. I just want to point out, though, I I mentioned this in my piece, that uh, the FDA, that, you know, the the rate of failure for new trials of uh, cancer drugs is higher than any part, any other part of medicine. And the drugs that have been approved, this was a study of drugs approved by the FDA between, I don't know, 2007 and 2014, some period like that. And, uh, they extended life of cancer patients on average by about two months. Right. A majority of the drugs actually didn't extend life at all and harmed quality of life. Right. So they had actually no value at all. And these are the drugs that have been approved by the FDA. And so, let, me, uh, let me also take this opportunity to point out that uh, uh, North Korea it's been a very long time since North Korea has developed a life-saving drug. Yes. Right. right. It's been a very damn long time since the Russians or the, the Chinese have developed a life-saving drug. Most of that occurs here in the United States because yes. at least here, the drug companies understand that they at least can get part, if not all, of their $100 million investment in that drug recouped through sales which they can't do over there. I mean, this, yeah. this, you know, if you've got a $100 million barrier to a new drug coming on the market, uh, you know, you've got to be able to, to, I mean, that's a lot of skin in the game, right? Yeah. And not everybody is going to be capable of participating in this deal. And it just, you know, if you have a chance to get paid for it, you might be more likely to, to try to develop something new. But your point is certainly not lost. We've spent all this money on this shit and it's not making things much better. And yeah. the reason it's not making things much better appears to be that there actually is a bottleneck here. Cancer kills people. It's a horrible disease. It kills people. If it gets out of hand, if it becomes an actual Death sentence. It's it's not something that can be fixed. But the things that can't be fixed are being treated anyway. But things that that can get fixed by themselves are being treated unnecessarily. So we've got a we've we've got a situation where the best way to not die of cancer is to don't smoke. You fucking idiots! <laughs> don't smoke. That's it. Stinks. It's everybody hates it. Nobody wants to be around you. You don't care. Go ahead and smoke, but do it over there. Go outside, but just why don't you just quit? And if you do get cancer when you smoke, good. Good. Get out of here. Okay, you knew better than that. Now, didn't you? You knew better than that because we've all known for a very long time that it can kill you. 
it can make you have cancer. All right, I'm sorry you're dying, but you know, it wasn't. It's not like you weren't told. Okay. Uh, That's some tough love there, Mark. Well, I'm, you know, John, is it? But you know what? My fallback position is is true. Yeah. Now, isn't it? Yes. This isn't is. news. Yeah. This isn't news. Uh, just don't smoke. Yeah, you, know, you right. may die of cancer anyway. It's absolutely true. Yeah. Ina's mom died of cancer. She didn't smoke. Might die of cancer anyway. But why would you do something that increases your likelihood of dying from cancer by 25 times if you could just not do that? Yeah. I mean, I understand you, you have to eat, right? You got to drink water, but you don't have to smoke. And here's your takeaway, boys and girls. You don't have yeah. to smoke. Don't smoke. John, I think right. we kicked this around pretty thoroughly. Um, yeah, I enjoyed it. Enjoyed the conversation. Uh, if you think of something clever to talk to us about, let me know. We'll get you back on. I appreciate okay. it, Mark. John Horgan's been our guest today on Starting Strength Radio. We hope we've turned on some lights for you and uh, would uh, appreciate it if you'd pass this around. And uh, I guess the best thing to do is hide and wait for next Friday and see what we come up with then. Thanks for being here. Talk to you next time. <laughs>